0: Would you sign up for either a witness, judge, or lawyer role? You have your choice. Um, The way to think about this is to try to understand the legal concepts that I'm going to be introducing to you uh, in conjunction with the facts. And we won't deal with the facts at all today. We'll just be continuing with the legal issues, thank you, that we discussed last time. Uh, You can change your role if you find that you'd rather do something else, or it's too much or too little. That will be fine, too. Uh, We have plenty of witnesses. um, And that means we're going to have some interesting sets of facts. But it will be important to agree on some basic facts. You can't say, you know, one side says it's on the moon, the other side says it's on Venus. So you've got to have it more or less within some set of facts. But then there will be factual disputes. All right, um, let's talk about some of these concepts that we were dealing with last week and continuing on to the present. Uh, I mentioned the basic outline of civil law systems around the world and criminal law involves mental and material elements, right? And there was also, in the context of the International Criminal Court, as well as many civil law systems, the contextual elements. The contextual element makes it a crime under international law, as opposed to a crime within a domestic system. And the contextual element, depending on whether you're dealing with, in our case, crimes against humanity or other counts of this court, Article 6 is. Genocide. Article seven, which we're dealing with, is crimes against humanity, and Article eight of the ICC International Criminal Court Statute concerns war crimes. Um, contextual element says, you know, how how do we get this into an international court, basically, and applying the International Criminal Court's statute? Just to review again, all civil law systems and most common law systems as well have to prosecute someone, you have to prove a mental element and a material element, okay? Now, this is pretty complicated. If you read the reading carefully, and we'll go over some of the most important aspects of it, you'll realize that the mental element uh, is built on the civil law concept coming from Roman law of mens rea. In Latin, that would mean guilty mind. Men's meaning mind, Rea is guilty. Uh, now, what is a guilty mind? Well, one way to define it is to say what it's not. It's not someone who's a minor, who's by definition not old enough to have a guilty mind. Uh, in uh, <coughs> common law and most civil law systems, as a concept of insanity, if you really are totally out of yourself and don't know what you're doing, you may be locked up and put in a mental hospital, but you're not punished because you weren't said to have a guilty mind. The ICC has another category, intoxication, which you wouldn't find in a civil law s- s- uh, system to absolve you from all crimes. Like If you, had, if you drove drunk and killed some people d- while driving, you wouldn't be guilty of murder, but you might be guilty of, of homicide, of, of manslaughter. In other words, unintentional killing, irresponsible, negligent, reckless killing, but not intending to murder somebody. Uh, Intoxication is a defense in the International Criminal Court because the core crimes are these super crimes, the crime of crimes, war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. So again, you would be guilty in in a, a, a domestic court of some crime if you were intoxicated and went out and mass-murdered people, but they might, if you truly were intoxicated, at least according to the ICC statute, and I don't know of any cases yet on it, that would be a defense for not having a guilty mind. Therefore, the mental element has not been achieved. Therefore, you are not guilty. Uh, Also, remember, not guilty doesn't mean innocent, even though that's the way it's portrayed in our press, right? Uh, Someone is absolved in in a particular case. Everyone says he's innocent. Well, no. Not guilty means that you're not guilty. It doesn't mean you're innocent. First view, yeah. Um is intoxicated defense? Um like do the jonjaweed and those type of militias or whatever where Well they don't drink, they're Muslim. They they don't what? They don't drink. No, but intoxication, like the johnsweed, they chew on. They chew on this weed that uh, intoxicates them, and then their computers have them. Go out well, the jonjaweed militia is not being prosecuted. The interior minister and the president. I mean, it's really not designed for small fish. Okay. But I, I, you know, you're asking. It's a perfectly good question, and it's a perfectly good example. Would you sign up for either a witness judge? Thanks. Um, I lost my train of thought. Um, the intoxication, what was I thinking? I had it. Um, all right, well, anyway. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. It'll come back to me, and I'll come back to it, unfortunately, to people coming later. Like it, sorry. It's OK. Um, the idea here is that uh, with the Janjaweed militia, who are not prosecuted by the International Criminal Court, intoxication is, I'm just repeating what I said, is that, you know, intoxication might be, oh, I got it. now I get the point, finally. All right, the point I was trying to make is that in dealing with the, the ICC statute, or dealing with the civil codes of civil s- systems, or criminal codes, or criminal procedures, these are the basic principles, right? And there's a debate in law, particularly within civil law systems. How specific do you make the law? Do you try to foresee all the future circumstances, or do you leave it vague and abstract and leave it up to the judge to apply? And it's a little bit of a dilemma, because if you leave it very, very specific, the judges won't make law. It'll be as you planned, but you have to be omni- omniscient, all-knowing. You, can, you have to be able to foresee all the possible circumstances uh, that would come up before a court. Uh, and so. Therefore, if you leave it up to the judge who who can make a much more appropriate determination and interpretation of the law to a particular set of facts, then you're giving the judge more leeway. And if you give the judge more leeway, then the judge is going to be more active in essentially broad interpretations and therefore making law. So the downside in this dilemma is that you give the judge flexibility to avoid idiotic, you know, uh, planning in some conference room involved delegations making negotiations, or 200 years ago it was written and you don't know what the circumstances are of today, uh, you're going to have a a law that's going to be completely inflexible. But if you give the judge flexibility, then you'd have the judge actually interpreting statutes, interpreting codes, applying new circumstances, Uh, and judges will, in effect, be making law, which is thought by some theories of democracy to be Anti democratic because the idea is that judges merely interpret and apply the law, but they do not make law. In fact, political scientists think judges make law, and many law professors think judges make law. So this notion of intoxication is is a good example because I'm surely they were thinking of alcohol, right? But uh, would you want to have defined intoxication even more specifically at the drafting stage? If you do, you rule out or rule in, depending what your side. non-alcoholic forms of intoxication, drugs, whatever this weed is, or what have you. But yes? Uh, that's kind of what I wanted to get to, uh, curiosity. How would the court define someone who's being intoxicated? I well, the court is a, a new court. The ICC is a new court. It's just taking its first cases. So this is all theoretical at this point. It's in the statute. It is a defense. Uh, it would serve as a form of you know, getting you out of mens rea. There are also other parts of you know, immunities, which is, is another defense, but it's not really dealing with how guilty, whether your mind is guilty. Okay? Now, the way that the statute defines it is both in terms of intent and knowledge. And one of the important things is that the statute, if you read the, the reading carefully, it, there was debate. In most civil law systems, you either you don't have to have both, but here at the International Criminal Court, you have to have both intent and knowledge. So that's a very rigorous standard. You have to be both um, have a sense of what you're doing and knowledge of what you're doing and its consequences. So intent primarily connotes uh, what you think is gonna happen, and knowledge primarily denotes that you, you see what you're doing and you see the consequences of them. So it gets even more complicated, right? If you think this is complicated, uh, read the reading really carefully and you'll see how complicated it is, because it, it is incredibly complicated and uh, civil law systems are much more complicated in their structure, and German approaches are the most complicated, much more common here than the French. If you did the reading in this book for today, you'll know that the French code was written for everyone in the country to understand. Uh, for the average French citizen, the German uh, approach was has many characteristics, but among, the, among it, it's meant to be legal science, therefore, to reflect the laws it really is, therefore, to study every little aspect and every little twist and turn that the law takes. And German law students have to understand how that works. OK, so uh, the mental element is intent and knowledge of the crime, both. You don't have knowledge. You don't have the mental element. Therefore, you're not guilty. doesn't mean you're, you're innocent. It just means you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, intent, and knowledge. And the material element is primarily just, you know, the act, actus, i okay, got Latin the phrase, actus, ret, um, anyway, it refers to the actual acts as specified, in this case, Article 7 on crimes against humanity. The contextual element, which makes it a crime under international law, for Article 7 would be um, a widespread or systematic attack. Because that's what it states in Article 7 as being required for crimes against humanity. So in your moot court, one of the big issues about the chemical weapons and their residues was, was this part of a widespread or systematic attack? Remember, unlike the word and, which means both are required, or means either or. widespread attack or a systematic attack. Now, that's pretty complicated. Is everyone still with me? Maybe yes, maybe no. Okay. We're going to get even a little bit more complicated, but that's the way that's the way law is. I didn't invent it. That's the way it's happened. So the next thing to understand is what is intent. Okay. What is a guilty mind? Well, they're in... Civil law systems, they're up to four standards of what uh, is included. Um, And in the ICC, only two of them are stated in the statute. The two that are not stated are recklessness and negligence. Why do I put those first? Well, just to give you a sense of, would you want someone to be guilty if they're being reckless, but not directly, deliberately intending things to happen? And would you want someone to be criminally liable if they're just negligent? They didn't intend it, but they just didn't want to go through all the trouble of being careful, even though in the ordinary cor- course of events, that kind of behavior, a reasonable person would be uh, expected to understand that murder, rape, pillage would happen as a result. Now, to give you some examples, like you know, if the ICC has command responsibility, so you, know, you didn't intend these things, but if you were negligent. A reasonable person would re- predict that you would understand that you know, your soldiers might wanna go out and kill, rape, loot, and pillage, whatever, they, you know, if you're not being careful. Or if you're the head of a school principal, let's say, in an ordinary civil law situation, and you're negligent, um, and you don't have proper discipline in the school, you might find kids getting picked on. So you didn't intend for the kid to be picked on but you also were negligent in not making sure that there were careful, you know, a, a, syst- a system of safety, a nice environment, or a way of, of policing the school to make sure that kids aren't picked in, picked on, especially picked on violently, because uh, you know they from experiences bullying and so forth. Now, um, recklessness is not, not as tough as negligent. I mean, to hold someone criminally liable for negligence is to basically say you not only have to be aware and you don't even necessarily have to intend it, you just have to be doing a bad job. And you're just as guilty as the person who deliberately did the act and wanted to do the act and wanted to do the harm. So neither one of these standards are in the ICC statute for international criminal law, but, and here's another level of complexity, Article 30 of the statute says that uh, customary international law can apply. It doesn't say those words, customary international law, but it says other sources of law. And since most domestic legal systems do include standards for intent involving negligence or recklessness, judges may decide to hold someone criminally liable simply because they're reckless or negligent even though they never intended to do the, the particular acts themselves, or intended their subordinates to do the particular acts themselves. Yeah? You think it's so often that they do include no recklessness? that like judges do include recklessness on in leg In civil law systems, recklessness, in not all necessarily, but in particular situations, uh, the codes do allow for intent to include recklessness, even though you didn't directly intend to have that consequence. Now, this ICC statute says, and knowledge. So that takes the edge a little bit off of recklessness. In other words, you're reckless, but you're still not guilty unless you know that these things are going on. So you could be incompetent and negligent because you're not creating safety, but you're not going to be guilty by this standard unless you actually know that kids are getting picked on and beaten up, and then you don't do anything about it or to stop it, okay? Now, I'm not, this is not a law school class, and certainly not a civil law school class, which is not even the legal system we use in the United States, although, as I said, it is the legal system of the majority of the world, but I think if you go through these, this training of thinking like a lawyer, and I didn't even go to law school, but I have learned how to do it just you know, by teaching and uh, study, um, I think you, you, know, you, you will get a really interesting form of training, whether you ever want to be a lawyer or not, Uh, And and it will help you be a common law lawyer by knowing some of the similarities and differences of asking the same questions and answering them in the same way or different ways. Because even in the United States, we basically have 50 legal systems for most laws, certainly most criminal laws are the 50 states. And while all the states ask the same questions, they answer them often in very slightly or very different ways. Finally, if any of you is a New Orleans Saints fan, or want to practice law in New Orleans or, for that matter, Louisiana, Louisiana and the province of Quebec in Canada, to say nothing of the majority of the world's countries, uh, former French colonies from Haiti to French West Africa, uh, all use the French legal system. So if any of you decide to move to Louisiana, you'll have to learn how to do code-based legal systems. So. It, One of the 50 states in the United States does have the code-based system, as does uh, the province of Quebec in Canada, based on French legal codes from the last century. Um, Now, I also mentioned this Article 30 as other sources of law. And I mentioned customary international law. For those of you who've never had international law before, let's just say that customary international law is the law that's not in codes, that is not in treaties or other documents, but is accepted and practiced by states as a binding legal obligation. Now, since it's not written down, that opens it up to a lot of potential debates as to whether or not customary international law is international law, but effectively what this means is you're citing cases. Now you're not citing them in quite the same way as in a common law system uh, when you're making an argument before a judge in a legal brief or oral argument because the cases are not strictly speaking binding the way they are in the United States. But think of it this way, if you're practicing in Georgia and you cite a case from Mississippi or any other state, that's not binding either. It's merely instructive. It's merely an indicator of how other courts have approached a similar question. But the cases are cited to make an argument. And there's a debate in the United States Supreme Court uh, as to whether foreign cases should be cited or not. Justice Thomas and Scalia think it should not even be mentioned, whereas other members of the court say, look how other countries have approached these legal questions uh, is interesting and relevant. It's not binding by any sense. You're not required to follow it because it's not in the same jurisdiction in the same way that Mississippi is not bound by Louisiana or Oregon or any other state, on an issue of state law. Uh, But it is instructive. And so uh, for these cases, at certain point, you might start to look at cases that have been decided on customary international law, for example, if you decide that the facts involve issues of recklessness or negligence? Yeah. Yeah, um, it, like customary law, probably like in general, isn't like, isn't like the kind of law that the UK uses at, um, at the national level, since they don't have a written constitution? Well, first of all, they do have a written constitution. Yeah, it's the European Convention on Human Rights. So on, as far as rights are concerned, and constitutions also involve government procedures, but as far as rights, for the last since 1998, Britain has had that part written and is bound by the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, as far as customary international law goes and whether British law is customary because it's unwritten, that same question would apply to five countries. Israel and New Zealand, I think, are three of the five, including Britain, that, that have unwritten constitutions where tradition and custom bind, but remember that that's as far as the Constitution is concerned and not all law. And the Constitution is primarily two things in a country. It is the way the government works, in effect, and the rights of the people against the government. Uh, And secondly, the Constitution also indicates sources of law and who will make the law. So these kinds of questions in a country like Britain have been determined by custom. Customs do change. Britain now has, as a result of uh, devolution or decentralization or federalism, now a Welsh and Scottish parliament with limited autonomy. So that's a big change in its constitution about 10 years ago under Tony Blair. It's a little bit deceptive to use the term custom because you get new customs. Um, On the other hand, the English common law, which we'll study in a few weeks, uh, was developed over eight or nine centuries. And it was the common law that was incorporated into most of the states, certainly the 13 original colonies through the court system. And those were written by judges uh, resolving disputes on a case-by-case case basis, it's a very complicated story, and won't we'll get into it now. Uh, but you know, in effect, most of the law of the United States, on an everyday basis, was determined six to seven hundred, eight hundred years ago, based on the practices of the British countryside. Now it's evolved, and so forth. And the same thing has happened in the development of the civil laws. We'll talk about uh, later today. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's like raising their fingers, and I think it's a question, but it's not. All right. Um, the material element you're going to need to read, particularly Article Seven of the ICC Statutes. So just Google ICC Statute, and you'll see it. Um, and but there, are, you know, there are a number of types of acts that might apply. Um, And depending on which act, you might get a a different standard of intent. Now that's as deep as I'm gonna go in terms of the complications of law, but that also will give you a taste of what you got to look forward to, not only in the moot court, but in case you wanna be a lawyer. Because in fact, you think civil law is complicated, common law that we have in the United States and Britain is even more complicated. Because you gotta read all the cases that were decided, because they are binding on these particular issues, whereas in the civil law systems, you just read the codes and the relevant statutes. But the civil law system is not easy. Um, If you read the best way binder on some of these issues, and I hope you all do read it, because you'll, you'll see just how complicated civil law reasoning is. This is written by a German, and it's translated into English. And you can see the paragraphs, the main points are in big type. The most advanced points are in the tiny type that gives the most intricate detail. It's often in the tiny type that you see the expression, the devil is in the details, because it's there that they point out that, by the way, you know, some articles provide for an alternative interpretation, uh, some cases provide for different interpretation, or some subsections have different interpretation. And that unfortunately is what law is all about, whether it's common law or civil law, because both have statutes. A statute, if you don't know this word, is a a legal term for a law passed by a legislature. And since these are laws written by legislatures, they are vague, they represent political compromises, often at four o'clock in the morning when people are half awake, usually motivated by Uh, pork barrel trade-offs and other favors that are exchanged. Uh, In other words, applying statutes to both the code and or the Constitution to the set of facts that you have before us is not natural science. It's legal science. okay? And that involves interpretation and that means the judge really has to get involved in deciding what the law is going to do in a particular set of conflicts. And that gives the judge an active role, even in civil law systems. But the difference is that in civil law systems, unlike ours, what the judge decides in interpreting a statute to apply to a set of facts is not binding case law on the future. Do you have a question? No? OK. Every time I see motion. I think someone's asking a question. But please do ask questions if if, if I'm going too fast or it's too complicated or too difficult. Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. Kind of? All right, so then, you need to establish the contextual element, the mental element, the material element. The mental element is gonna be one of the trickiest because you may be able to prove that the person did the act. But just because someone did the act does not make them guilty. Now, this is further complicated by one fact, which is that um, while knowledge of your acts is required, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Everybody in the world, if you break the law, you can't say, well, I didn't know that was the law. If you're going to in and stop trading, Uh, And you engage in insider trap trading, and you say, "Oh, I didn't know there was a rule against insider trading, trading inside knowledge about a company that's not public knowledge, and making a huge profit of it." You can't say that I didn't know that. So it's not, you know, knowledge is knowledge about the acts, not knowledge of the law. So um, that's another thing to be to bear in mind. Immunity might apply if you're a subordinate. There is. Although you have an obligation in, in international law to disobey an illegal order, it has to be a manifest, obvious legal, illegal order. An order that's not manifestly illegal, you have a defense that you are disobeying orders. Now, but you have an obligation to know a manifestly illegal order, so if someone says, okay, go in that village and kill all the kids, you have an obligation to know that's obviously illegal and you have an obligation to disobey it. But if your commanding officer said something like, uh, go into that village and take all the identity papers, and you 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 didn't know that that was an illegal order because they have a right to keep their identity papers, and I'm making this up, I don't know if it's legal or, or illegal, but it's obviously not a manifestly illegal thing, you could say, okay, I have immunity because I was just obeying orders. Minors have immunity, intoxicated people have immunity, uh, and so forth. So that's the basic outline of what we're doing uh, in establishing this case that involves uh, chemical, toxic chemical uh, pollution on a particular country. Um, now the question I wanna conclude with today on the, on the reading for the uh, case is the question of crimes under international law. I want to get this concept clear, because we're, we're reading this both to understand how civil law systems, but to give you an introduction of how uh, civil law and common law systems are combined. Uh, for example, in this question of intent, recklessness and negligence are not part of common law systems, our legal systems, as, as a, a guilty mind. Okay, what we have in the common law systems is a, a different crime. Negligent Criminal negligence is the crime. But for whatever reason, the civil law systems evolve differently, so they don't have a separate category for criminal negligence. It would just be a form of intent for the bigger crime. And You can debate which is better, which is worse, what has, or the advantages of one approach. As another approach, but the point I'm making is there are different ways to solve these puzzles. These other societies function, we function, and they've evolved to do it that particular way. Similarly, uh, civil law systems, at least historically, never had a crime of conspiracy. In common law systems, not only is the act criminal, but planning the act is criminal, even if you don't ever do it. Uh, In civil law systems, it's much more based on the idea that um, concrete actions happened and you've got to do something about it. It doesn't, oddly enough, even though common law evolves deductively from actual circumstances in cases, common law has a more abstract number of complications. In other respects, the common law is much more pragmatic and practical, because it comes out of particular situations. It's hard to generalize. But for example, in the laws of contract, which in the United States we say contracts with an S. But in English common law, they say the law of contract, which is one of the core areas of law in civil codes. In the civil law systems, a law of a breached contract a broken contract which is formed by an offer being and accepted Uh, contracts are formed when you make an offer and the other side accepts the terms that you've offered so i agree to sell you this shirt for 25 dollars, and i promise that the shirt is a good shirt maybe not perfect but you know what i said it's to be Uh, and you agree to pay me and if you pay me um, that means that the contract has been enforced, but the contract is formed the, min- the minute I say I would like to accept your offer of selling this shirt for $25. A breach contract would be, um, let's say I promised to pay the money next week, because in a store, in, that, in effect, it'd be, you'd be shoplifting. guilty of a crime if you just didn't pay, but now th- let's say you know, you agree to pay this mortgage, you agree to pay this debt, and you don't pay, right? So you've breached the contract. That's a civil breach. It's not a criminal breach. You can't be put in prison for not paying a debt unless you were fraudulently intending never to pay. But if you just don't have the money, they can't put you in prison for it anymore in most legal systems. Uh, But the remedy in civil law systems for the breach is to do the contract. Because the theory in civil law systems has emerged since Roman times you make an agreement, a promise, you got to keep it. And unless it's impossible to perform the contract, such as in German law, the Nazi regime dissolved from existence, so the Nazi regime could no longer perform its uh, contracts after World War II. But other than that, you're expected to pay the money. Or whatever else you promised to do. In common law systems, we more pragmatic. Uh, If if you promise to to, uh, build a bridge and you don't build a bridge, then you can just pay money instead of being forced to build the bridge. Um, And that's just a different approach. Okay, so how did civil law systems emerge? Uh, The chapter in the Comparative Legal uh, Systems book talks about um, the emergence of Roman consults, Juris as they were called, so legal counselors, to translate literally, that emerged in the late Republic. The Republic of Rome uh, existed up to the first century AD until Julius Caesar was murdered. And then an empire was established, and they no longer had their form of democracy, uh, which was based on race publica, rule of the people. It's, it wasn't a democracy in the Athenian sense that all citizens participated. There were representatives. And interestingly enough, the United States formed its republic, which we defined as anything without a king or a monarch, uh, as uh, not a democracy either. We were based on rule you know, by the people, which is not quite the same thing as democracy as it's come to be known. Although, of course, originally, dem- Democrazia in Greece, in Greek, also meant rule of the people, where demos was the people and kratia was rule. So, in any event, uh, the Roman Republic had these lawyers, and even in the Roman Republic, these specialists were writing down what the rules of the, of the Roman Empire were. And these jurist consults, in effect, played the role that the English judges made in the countryside. They were not theoretically representing the people, but they wrote down the laws that the people were practicing. And the theory of it is that it was acceptable, not only because it was imposed by the regime, but also because these are supposed to be neutral, uh, unbiased observers, in the German sense, scientific legal scholars, who were writing down the rules that people were using in the day. um, of course, then and now, powerful people had more influence in determining what the rules are than unpowerful people. Uh, if you're conservative, you would say, that's fine, that's the way it's always been, maybe that's the way it should be. If you're more egalitarian, you would say, well, we need to construct government institutions that would at least consult people on how they are, those rules are formed. But in any event, just as the judges in the English countryside wrote down the laws in court cases and established the law common to England, the jurisconsults began doing that in the late Republic period. Now, we don't know, according to the reading, what happened with that, those series of rules that were written down over the next three centuries. But after Rome fell in, I think it was 418 AD, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, under the emperor Justinian, made an effort to revive Roman law principles because now the Roman Empire was based in Constantinople and would be based there for the next uh, 900 years until Constantinople was sacked and the Byzantine Greek Empire fell. So what you had in Justinian in the fifth century AD, a little bit over a century after the city of Rome for the Western Roman Empire fell, was an effort to figure out what was the Roman law, even though all the sources, the written sources were not available. Now you see this pattern over and over again in the development of Roman law and to civil law around the world. That uh, it's both a process of identifying rules, some of which are well known, some of which are not well known. Uh, Written sources may or may not be available, There's integration of local customs. And there's integration of uh, new scientific or theological or other cultural traditions that adapt the law to its present format. But one can say that going back to the late Roman Republic, and certainly going back to the Justinian Code, it has formed the basis of the legal systems of depending whether you count population or the number of countries, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of the world's surface. You go by population, um, then you throw China in there, and then you really have uh, code-based systems dominating, although Chinese codes are not based on Roman code, they're based on Confucian code. But it's still a code-based process. The historical evolution is identified in the reading It went through various stages. There was, uh, first of all, the Justinian's effort to put four different ways of categorizing the knowledge. Uh, The most important of these was the uh, institutes. Sorry, the institutes were the most important because they were a summary of the detailed codes. And the institutes were used by the Germans as the basis for the German code that was promulgated in 1896. I'll get to those in a second. it's more important, historically, the, the bulk of the code was in the digest. Uh, and the digest was most important in terms of identifying the key categories of law, stats, uh, personal status, torts, unjust enrichment, contracts, and remedies. Let me just briefly state what these are. Uh, first of all, personal status would you know, determine whether you have rights under the law or not, whether you're a minor or an adult, whether you're married or single, whether you're slave or free. Because remember, slavery was part of the Roman Empire and a part of human history for up until the early 19th century, and of course, still exists in approximately 30 countries in the world today. Torts are harms. The French word "tort," based on the Latin word, Uh, a harm could be hitting, assault or battery. It could be uh, a nuisance, playing loud music in your dorm at five o'clock in the morning. Um, It could be air pollution, polluting your water or your toxic chemicals. Uh, Unjust enrichment is an interesting concept. Uh, Probably refers to fraud. You know, selling goods with deception or not do, d- deliberately planning to, to deceive somebody and making money. I don't think it has the more modern connotation of you know, just making too much money too fast by a quick trade on the market or what have you. In any event, that's not a crime in the United States. Um, contracts, I've already said, is an offer which is accepted. And when consideration is provided, that is payment usually, That means the contract has been enforced. And then remedies, which in Roman law is not a subcategory of each of these other substantive areas. It's a a specific issue of how do you get resolution. Interestingly enough, in Great Britain in the Middle Ages had courts at law and courts at equity. And the equity courts provided the remedies. But what happened in the last 200 Years was, and in the early part of the United States Second Republic, 1789, was a merging of equity and law courts into one court. So the remedies were applied in each area of law by a common court. Whereas in the civil law system, the remedies can be a separate body of law based on the Roman practice of having a separate court to figuring out what to do about a particular situation. Um, Okay, so I won't go into too much detail about the Justinian Code, just to note that the statutes that came after were a separate body of law, and uh, that made it even more complicated, because what you have when you have a code-based system is usually four or five basic codes. Usually a civil code and a criminal code, and civil procedure and a criminal procedure code Those two procedural codes, primarily dealing with trials and all the pre-trial and post-trial motions, whereas the civil code and the criminal code are the basic laws. But in modern states, you have subsequent laws that are passed by legislatures, by executives promulgating legislation, and so forth. So the code-based systems put the code on a pedestal and it's still the first place you look. And the subsequent statutes are inferior to the code. In our common law system in the United States and in international law, the most recent statute or the most recent treaty is the one that's binding if there's any conflict with past treaties. One of the critiques of code-based systems is when you get a series of statutes passed by legislatures The overall civil code or criminal code, unless you're dealing with a trial, let's say, that you're going to look at is still going to be the basic guiding principles, like a constitution. And so the subsequent laws can't contradict the code unless you amend the code itself. So one way to think about the codes for code-based systems as sort of analogous to our constitutions they, are, they are, provide the primary rules. They are the rules to make rules. But they're also the basic principles which cannot be contradicted. Just as I said, the basic principles of criminal law and civil law systems and at the ICC come from the civil law system. And these basic principles are the contextual element, the mental element, and the material element. And the mental element requires, at least in the ICC, intent and knowledge. And there's also a basic principle of immunity. Okay, that those are basic principles that would be analogous to the criminal code of civil law countries. And once again, civil law countries is different from a civil lawsuit in a common law country, right? In a common law country, civil lawsuit is as opposed to a criminal lawsuit. In other words, it's a conflict between two private entities, whether two individuals, a corporation, or what have you, where a criminal case would be the prosecution of an individual for violating the criminal law of a state or a nationality. Now, the civil laws emerged over time. The next great stage of evolution after the Justinian Code uh, was overcome by uh, essentially the cutoff of Western Europe from the Eastern Roman Empire and the decline of the Byzantine Empire over the centuries was the revival or discovery of co- uh, of the civil law systems in the Middle Ages. Uh, this was partly a result of the contribution of Arabs to Western civilization because they also discovered during this period. Uh, Aristotle, Plato, some of the great Greek civilizations. Um, Irish priests also were said to have done the same thing. But during this Middle Age period, there was also rediscovery of Roman law in Western Europe based on the Justinian codes rewriting of the original jurisconsults' writing in the late Roman Republic. And that stage of canon law, that is the church was basically running the show In the Holy Roman Empire, which was started in the late 10th century, um, Charlemagne was the great emperor. Uh, It was said to be neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but it did last many centuries. And the the church was basically in charge. There was no separation of church and state. And so canon law, the law of the church, was also the laws of these territories in Europe. And canon law then applied ecclesiastical principles to Roman law and provided also some fusion of everyday practices. Now this is all complicated and detailed and I don't expect you to know all the details for any test, but the next great stages that really ought to deserve our attention are the development of the two great families of civil law. Basically we just call it the French and the German. And these two approaches certainly are the major branches of civil law in the world today. The French system, because of colonialism, spread it to Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, and as I mentioned earlier, Quebec and Louisiana, and Haiti, and a few other uh, French places in the Caribbean like Guadeloupe. And the German, because it was said to be the the greatest development of legal science, it took 20 years to write, began after the unification of the German Empire by uh, Bismarck, who uh, created Germany in 1870 after conquering France in the Franco-Prussian War. And they spent 20 years developing the German Code, and they developed it on the basis of legal science, which I'll talk about in a second. And I mentioned earlier that these two families of code-based systems around the world really take different approaches. The code system of French, which was developed uh, essentially by Napoleon, and when Napoleon was on Helena in exile, he said, well, I've, I've lost everything at Waterloo, but the French civil law will be my greatest contribution because they will never uh, take that away. And in many ways, you know, of the two, the French Influence on the development of civil law around the world is the greatest, and therefore Napoleon's influence has been the greatest. One of the things that the French si- uh, code based system did when Napoleon imposed it not only on France itself but also on the areas that he conquered, like the lowlands, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, the Habsburg Empire, uh, Prussia briefly, and elsewhere was that it basically said the law no longer came from the ecclesiastical sources. These territories were using this Roman-influenced system based on canon law up to this point, and these monarchies were theologically legitimated. So the law was said to come from God, and now Napoleon is saying, no, it's coming from res publica, from the republic, the first republic in his case that overthrew the ancien regime, the former theologically legitimated uh, French monarchy. And it was written very quickly, as unlike the German system, which was written over two decades, the French system was written in a couple of years (coughs) uh, by four people. And as I said, it was made to be understood by anyone in French written in very simple language. So of the two approaches, The German system is the most complicated. It tries to foresee all of the circumstances that could emerge into the future in the law itself. So they try to maximize uh, certainty in the law, but also raises the difficulty of coming up with a set of rules before you have particular concrete circumstances before they're going to be utilized. And the French system, which is much more basic, clear, and doesn't try to anticipate, doesn't try to be all knowing and all predicting, and allows judges to apply them in particular circumstances. The French system had three basic principles to it. Um, One of them was the notion of patriarchy, which was that the man was the head of the family and the man decided everything. I'm sure that's adjusted a lot in contemporary French law, uh, but that was the system there. In terms of family law, the father was the one that just had all the power. The Germans didn't take that approach, and whatever you think of Germany or France or their cultures, the German approach, and maybe that's simply because it was written uh, almost 80, 90 years later, uh, after Germany had industrialized, after German society had changed, but any women had m- much more rights under German civil law than under French civil law, and I'm sure the situation is quite different right now. Germany, of course, has a chancellor who is a woman. On the other hand, Germany has probably the highest rate of, you know, home mothers staying at home with the kids of any country in the world. The schools, you only go for half a day because the mom, if she's going to have a job, she's only expected to work half a day. So it's hard to make generalizations about these things. Uh, the second principle is freedom of contract. So contracts law was the big emphasis of the French Civil Code. And freedom of contract essentially stated that from now on the government keeps out of people's promises and deals and agreements. It was really the beginning of laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, In in rejecting uh, feudalism and the monarchy and agriculture and peasant masses even though Napoleon was styling himself as the emperor and making himself into a quasi-monarch and maybe had, had plans to have a dynasty as well uh, he did reject the idea of power coming from large number of peasants being exploited, producing food that's sold for profit uh, and using their cheap labor as conscripts on the battlefield uh, to the extent that Uh, by focusing on freedom of contract the economy's future is determined by entrepreneurs making deals according to their business plans, private individuals being influenced by notions of freedom and personal utilitarianism uh, and that the government would not judge a contract it would just enforce it if you just chose to make it so is is that kind of um... Well, freedom of contract is also a principle of common law, and perhaps the emergence in the 1810s and 20s of this principle of freedom of contract in the French Civil Code was influenced by laissez-faire industrial expansion in in Britain. You know, in, in 1789, 1820, Britain was just emerging as a potential threat. France and Germany had been fighting each other frequently, and when the Industrial Revolution took off in the 18th century, it would have been perfectly obvious to anyone in France that their economy was a whole lot different. They had all these factories producing clothes, importing and exporting textiles from all around the world. The French might, which was the mightiest unified country on the continent, was based on agriculture and feudalism. I don't know if they realized how, how much under threat they were, and certainly Napoleon's early victories made them probably think that no, we still got the better system. Also remember that in the United States the debate between Hamilton and Madison, or Jefferson and the Federalists, you know, was one that, you know, was won by the Federalists. We have a system of industrial laissez-faire capitalism. If Jefferson had his way, even more than Madison, who wrote our Constitution, we'd all be gentlemen farmers. Uh, sitting in the rural countryside uh, enjoying what Marx called the idiocy of rural life. Uh, But in any event, you know, these are not like, these are trajectories, but they do get modified over time. The trajectory in France was to catch up with British Industrial Revolution because they did accept this principle of freedom of contract, and eventually some of these nobility realized that they could get a higher return building factories than they would just by being the heads of landed estates. That was also because Napoleon's revolution was also against feudalism, so they broke up huge estates that used to lead to all these beautiful chateaus that people go visit when they go to France. And those chateaus were created from the wealth of very poor peasant farmers. This is not a history class, but it you know, gives you a, a sense of how this all emerged. And by breaking up the estates, they couldn't be as profitable And therefore, they had to put their money in other things. I think there was also a lot of expropriation in the French Revolution. People lost, you know, were physically attacked. They had their money stolen from them, they had their land stolen from them. The church's lands were stolen from it as well, as another major form of land holdings in France. Uh, And, you know, it was very much a radical revolution in almost a socialist confiscatory sense. But now, when this code is being built, Napoleon sees we've got to stabilize things. Make, let people freely make their contracts. But once you make a contract, you're bound to enforce it. And you've got to enforce it. Whereas in the United States, we had the s- same principle developed in England four or five centuries ago. But if someone breached a contract, there were other remedies other than having forcing someone to do it, usually paying money. If it was really important to have the action done, uh, then the equity courts emerged to give orders, what we call injunctions, to force you to do what you promised to do or force you to do what the law requires you to do. Now the French approach was accessible, the German approach is quite inaccessible. If you um, get a taste for the German approaches in reading this international law textbook, you see just how convoluted and complicated and complex it is. Uh, and to some extent you know the French system started simple and has become much more complicated the German system beginning in 1896 was complicated from the start and also has gotten more complicated so being a lawyer in Germany is you know very prestigious uh, not as lucrative as in the United States and England because the common law system uh, is even more complicated but it's very complicated it involves a lot of very difficult study and research to, to keep the big picture together to know all the rules that contradict and if this situation apply this rule and that situation apply that rule and this is going this direction and it's going that direction. But our system is even more complicated because we, gotta, we have that in the statutes and we also have case law. So in this case for this set of facts, which is slightly different from that case and that set of facts, we have this rule and we have this other rule is it the same set of facts for this th- current situation for case A or case B, um, or is it only case A or case B, and is the rule appropriate or not? And you can see, obviously, if you take public law, you know that legal science, even in the way the Germans approach it, is not natural science. It's something, something like what we call social science, which is what political science is. It's a form of knowledge, and the knowledge is somewhat subjective and inconsistent, but it has pretenses of being, having natural science approaches. That is, it has, you know in social science we have hypotheses, we try to confirm theories with evidence, uh, and we try to use the evidence to adjust our theories based on how they work out in practice. In legal science, particularly the German approach, Uh, They attempted to observe the rules of, of, of society, in this case, the German societies, soon after the unification of what was once the Holy Roman Empire and then became anywhere, depending on how you count, 30 to 400 German principalities, each with their own rules and customs. And they started writing this a few years after Germany was created in 1870 and then got it finished And so they're they're already dealing with a very heterogeneous set of political bodies with their own rules. First of all, German dialects, there must have been 30 to 50 of them. So these are unintelligible languages, unlike in France, which at the start of the French code was the same thing. But by the late 19th century, they turned all the French peasants into Frenchmen, as the expression goes. Eugène Weber's famous book, Uh, but the forced unification of France into a common French language, forcing everyone to be French, regardless of ethnicity or race, was quite different from the German approach, which said, you're German only by blood, but it didn't matter if you spoke different languages. We're not all forcing you to speak high German. To this day, there are many dialects in Germany, although there's been a general assimilation towards high German. So the German legal code is very complicated in part because Germany was more heterogeneous than France, had more different sets of rules to try to combine into one unified body of rules, and most importantly, because the German legal scholars took the approach that what we're going to do is try to figure out all the rules and combine them together and make a set of rules that apply to everyone based on all the different complicated aspects, and complexity is no obstacle. So, French law today has the virtue of being relatively simple and somewhat arbitrary. The Germans will figure out the rule of the battles on what, and they will look it for it and impose it and will do it which means that you've got to spend a heck of a time figuring out what is the rule, but they got a rule for it. Now, the German system was adopted by many countries, not just the few German colonies that existed before they were taken away at the Treaty of Versailles. At the end of World War I, places like Rwanda and Burundi were German colonies. Southwest Africa, which became Namibia, was a German colony. And those countries have German-based, code-based systems But it was also adopted in East Asia by a lot of countries because it was regarded as the superior system. So Japan's legal system, although heavily based on the Belgian constitution, is also based primarily uh, in terms of civil codes on the German civil code. And Korea, being a former Japanese colony uh, between the two world wars, also adopted the German style of legal system and legal code. Now finally, it should be noted that Scandinavia had its own codes that were written up as national codes so that these two basic families, both inspired by the effort to reconstruct Roman law as rewritten down in in codes by Justinian, and the French having been written primarily through the Justinian codes influence on canon law as adopted in the Middle Ages, but you had national codes being written in the 17th century in Scandinavia. You have national codes written in China, which even after the communist revolution weren't completely re- rewritten for private matters. So within the communist regime of China, which now is you know, socialism with a Chinese face or with Chinese characters, as they sometimes put it, B- basically a capitalist market with a strong oligarchy from the communist party and lack of political freedom as understood in the West, has personal laws on marriage and inheritance that date back to Confucius, and the code's written under what is called the Confucian Code. And to some extent, the civil civil code-based systems have rules on property, inheritance, and matrimonial law that date to the practices of the Roman Empire, as written down in the 5th century AD, in Constantinople by Justinian. The effort to make this work, of course, is what lawyers and legal systems do. And there is no legal system in the world that does this in any sense perfectly uh, with justice and with access. And there is clear uh, circumstance that would lead us to conclude that the as Charles Dickens once said, that the law is an ass. In Dickens' portrayals of Victorian England, he not only showed us the great poverty and the excesses of industrial revolution, but he also decried the legal courts as arbitrary and unjust. Uh, And that's a pretty good document on what things were like. Obviously, it was fiction to some extent. But it should be noted that uh, the code-based systems have the disadvantage of more arbitrariness than the common law systems because even codes, even when done in the German way with great complexity and detail, still do not have a consistent body of law that are written down by judges as binding decisions which can be judged by the community of judges and lawyers who use them and read them for their quality in the same way that the Supreme Court decision last week getting rid, overturning the previous upholdings of cases that forbid corporate <coughs> and union spending on behalf of <coughs> political candidates can be judged and is being judged. Um, but nevertheless, these kinds of systems have proven themselves as being functional and operative all around the world. And the principles are very similar in code-based systems to uh, common law systems. We're gonna talk a lot about the subtleties, and of course, it's very difficult. You can't, as a common law system, write a contract, even if you speak French, according to the French code, because the way it's processed is different. But the basic principles are not altogether different. The principles in criminal law that we've been talking about, for example, you know, we have the mental element also because English common law was influenced by Roman law as well. Remember, the Romans conquered England. And they got up to York, England, and even into Scotland and into Ireland. And they, although it was the periphery of the empire, they still had Roman law in those areas. And that influence continued. And similarly, the German tribes that conquered uh, Rome in the fourth and fifth century kept their own German law for Germans, but they they maintained the Roman law that had been practiced uh, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, and gradually they shifted to adopting the Roman law because it was more complicated and therefore more adaptable and useful. Quick question? Yes, um, the, the German law in particular, is it more concentrated within Central Europe or just any, any nation worldwide can? choose the German law. Well, the German family of code-based systems is not as broad. It, it is very influential in Central Europe. Obviously, countries like Hungary were very much influenced by the German system. Uh, but actually, oddly enough, as I said earlier, East Asia seems to be the primary area of influence. But one of the uh, main roles of influence <laughs> of the German system is that it does take the approach that's opposite of the French, which is to say that to be truly scientific, you don't rely on concepts of justice. The French system, I talked about freedom of contract, is much more influenced by natural law, that is the law that's regarded to be as just, based on principles. Whereas the German law says, we're going to base our notion of legal (coughs) positivism based on what is actually done. And one can see how the Nazi period—they were a lot of judges thought they were actually obeying the law in doing Hitler's work because they were do, following the law as it was written, and they lost track of what was just. They were also scared to death if they did think about these things. Um, and this tension goes to this day in common law systems. You know, there's this tension in the court now between positivism in the the, the jurisprudence of Scalia and Thomas, who say that we need to follow the text, and yet they also say we need to follow the natural law principles as founded by the framers, whereas others on the court, like Breyer, say that we need to follow the principles of democracy and representation as following the natural law, and that natural law ought to be more important than just what the text says. And there's practically no one in the court who's a pure positivist who say it's only the text. Because obviously they don't follow the text as it's written. Okay, thank you and I'll see you on Wednesday.